sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, your trending health headlines in about 60 seconds. Then, our monthly medical roundtable with our experts answering your questions. Here are your trending health headlines in about a minute. A crisis unveiled. Skyrocketing congenital syphilis rates in the United States raise urgent alarms. Plus, in a continuing trend, women are outliving men by about six years. What's behind this longevity shift? We'll also dive into the FDA's groundbreaking move to enhance prescription drug safety with new rules for broadcast ads, ensuring better understanding of side effects and contraindications. And the vaccination struggle continues, with only 15% of adults and a mere 5% of kids receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. There's a critical need for action. Finally, a beacon of hope as President Biden launches a groundbreaking women's health initiative. Those are your monthly health headlines. Joining us today to add perspective and delve into these headlines for our monthly medical roundtable show is an incredible medical powerhouse team. We have Dr. Daniel Correa. He is Deputy Chief of Neurology at Montefiore and an Assistant Professor of Neurology at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City and the editor and host of the Brain and Life podcast for the American Academy of Neurology. Daniel, welcome. I'm glad to be back with you guys. It's great to have you back. We have Dr. Denise Milstein. She is a practicing women's health internist and an integrative medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. She's also the host of her podcast, Read, Talk, and Grow. Dr. Milstein, welcome back. Great to be here. It's good to have you. And last but not least is... Chad Nielsen. He is the Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention at UF Health Jacksonville and a faculty member for the UF College of Medicine in Jacksonville. He's worked as an epidemiologist in the federal, state, county, and academic levels and has had more than 10 years of experience in the field of infectious disease epidemiology. Chad, welcome back as always. Thanks. It's always a pleasure. Chad, I am going to start with you. And one of the headlines uh, that really has grabbed our attention has been skyrocketing congenital syphilis rates. I can't even believe that I'm even saying that. But nonetheless, 10 times as many babies were born with syphilis in 2022 than a decade prior, bringing rates to their highest level in at least 30 years, according to reports from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, about 88% of last year's cases could have been prevented with timely testing and treatment during the mother's pregnancy. The increase in syphilis cases in newborns follows an increase in cases among women of reproductive age, which rose 676% 
between the years 2012 to 2021. Chad, we'll start off with the basics. Uh, remind everyone, what is syphilis? Yeah, so syphilis is a very old infectious disease, which has continued to pop up throughout uh, actually the world's history. It's an infection caused by the bacterium Treponema pallidum, and in most cases, it is sexually transmitted. It can also be spread from mother to her unborn baby, which is what we call uh, congenital syphilis. Uh, and after infection, symptoms typically appear around 21 days later. There's multiple stages of syphilis. And as the disease progresses untreated, the outcomes do unfortunately worsen. Those outcomes in most adults could include uh, permanent neuropathy, eye and ear issues, dementia, uh, and the outcomes are even worse in babies and infants. Uh, when I look at percentages that are in the hundreds of percent, 676% increase over a decade, I guess the simple question I'll ask is, why is this happening? Yeah, so it's really multifactorial. Uh, the latest CDC data available shows that particularly here in the U.S. between 2020 and 2021, there was a 32% rise in cases here in the States, uh, and those numbers did look the same globally. Most public health researchers agree that the extreme rises seen, at least during the pandemic time period, uh, are related to that interruption of public health services, uh, not just in the U.S., but through the globe. Here in the States, health departments uh, often serve as the critical frontline medical service agencies for the underserved, underinsured, and others. And when those resources were taken off of those services and shifted towards pandemic response during COVID, there just simply wasn't enough infrastructure or bandwidth to continue that crucial role of prevention, identification, and treatment of syphilis. Other factors that could have be uh, that could be fueling this global rise include just in general reduced stigma around STIs, uh, changing in dating habits uh, with the advent of different types of uh, mobile app dating sites, uh, and indeed uh, there could also be some biological explanations as well involving the bacteria itself. My last recollection about syphilis is that it is super treatable. Is syphilis still in the treatable category? Uh, in other words, this is something that could be averted or changed? Absolutely. Syphilis is very treatable in most cases with bicillin, which is a form of penicillin uh, and is a long-acting injectable drug. Uh, if bicillin is given to an infected pregnant mother, it successfully stops transmission to the baby at about a 90% success rates. Uh, and, and for those in adults, once treated with bicillin, there's very low risk of recurrence. Uh, the type of penicillin dosage and delivery mechanism do vary depending on the type of uh, stage that the patient is in. Uh, but unfortunately, due to the rising number of cases globally, bicillin has been hard for some clinicians to get their hands on due to the supply chain demands. Uh, Pfizer is the sole maker of the antibiotic. They have increased production globally about 30% in the last year alone. Uh, at the behest of the White House and other global health authorities. So uh, we're not seeing too many shortages right now, but uh, it is a very treatable disease. Chad, uh, when it comes to uh, how syphilis impacts individuals, uh, I know you mentioned some outcomes in kids. I'll kind of flip the question and simply ask, uh, what things should people watch out for that, they may want to consider getting treatment for? In other words, what is the signs or symptoms of syphilis? Um, should they be at risk, if you will? Yeah, so they used to call syphilis, and still to some degree, the great pretender because uh, it masquerades itself much like other types of sexually transmitted infections. So there might be uh, signs and symptoms in the GI or uterine tracts of people, uh, you're looking at discharge from the urethras. Those sort of uh, bread and butter signs of a sexually transmitted infection are what most people tend to note first with syphilis. However, uh, it does go beyond that because it's got a relatively lengthy uh, you know, infection period, up to three weeks or more in some cases. Other symptoms may also be involved, such as headaches, uh, fatigue, almost those flu-like viral uh, symptoms in addition to uh, those symptoms uh, in, in the um, sexual tracts of people. And so those symptoms combined with flu-like symptoms are going to be the biggest telltale for syphilis, which should warrant uh, an individual to go look for 
uh, treatment uh, in testing. Appreciate that. And we're going to uh, pivot to yet another topic. Dr. Milstein, one of the other big headlines, uh, which is, is, is troublesome, um, had to do with life expectancy and in particular a gender gap. Uh, the gender gap in life expectancy in the U.S. is the widest it's been in nearly three decades, with women living nearly six years longer than men on average, according to an analysis that was published earlier this month in JAMA. Uh, this analysis finds that COVID-19, the drug overdose epidemic, uh, have all been contributing to this widening gender gap in life expectancy. Uh, I'll start with you as a practicing internist. I mean, was this unexpected for you? Was this a surprise? This actually is not a surprise. We've seen this gender gap for a long time, but what is surprising is the rate at which the gender gap is diverging. So if you look at the gender gap over um, from 2010 to 2019, that increased at a certain rate, but from 2019 to 2021 in a three-year time period, it was a three times as much of an increase to diverge between men and women. So why would that be? And I think that is the part that is shocking regarding this most recent release of the data. Well, do you do you think that is this a sign that women have better health? Are we are we looking at it uh, in that way? How how do you view this when you see it? Yeah, so you remember that this is a, a marker of when people are dying and from what. So it's not necessarily associated with them living healthier lives, but longer lives and from certain conditions. You know, uh, men will die from specific conditions earlier than women will, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the years that women are alive are healthier years. Um, as we'll discuss later in the show, women's health has not had historically a lot of attention. So they may not necessarily be healthier through their lifespan, but they do on the whole live a longer lifespan. When I gave the explanations, COVID and other issues, is is that primarily why men are less likely to live? Yeah. So, Joe, you've hit the nail on the head. That sudden increase in the last three years really boils down to two major factors. So we know that men were much more likely to die from severe COVID. And the thought is that probably has to do with other comorbidities, meaning other chronic illnesses. It could also do with lifestyle factors. Perhaps they were the breadwinner that had to continue to work face-to-face -face with the public, for example. Right. It also is because of what is categorized as unintentional injuries. And underneath unintentional injuries, you will certainly have things like a motor vehicle accident, but also accidental death from uh, addiction, from overdose. So in an epidemic of opi opioid use disorder, uh, this is not surprising that we see higher death rates from this. And unfortunately, that is more likely to happen in men than in women currently. Dr. Milstein, do you expect this to equalize at some point? Well, I'm sorry to give you bad news, okay. Joe, but I'm it's sorry. been this way for over a century. So I think <laughs> okay. men have a lot of work to do if they want to catch up with women. I I hear you. I, I was just trying to be a little bit more positive, but I it is what it is when it comes to some of these issues. And to all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Daniel, I'm going to go to yet another topic, and I want you to take a listen to the following clip describing the side effects of a very common sleep drug, Lunesta. When taking Lunesta, don't drive or operate machinery until you feel fully awake, walking, eating, driving, or engaging in other activities while asleep without remembering it the next day have been reported. Abnormal behaviors may include aggressiveness, agitation, hallucinations, or confusion. In depressed patients, worsening of depression, including risk of suicide, may occur. Alcohol may increase these risks. 
Allergic reactions such as tongue or throat swelling occur rarely and may be fatal. Side effects may include unpleasant taste, headache, dizziness, and morning drowsiness. Ask your doctor if Lunesta is right for you. Now going forward, advertisements for prescription drugs that air on radio and TV will be required to disclose the treatment's major side effects and contraindications in a open quote here, clear, conspicuous, and neutral manner, close those quotes, under a rule finalized by the Food and Drug Administration in late November. Daniel, will this change make a difference, if you will, in your opinion on how these drugs are marketed or presented to the public? Well, you know, the immediate thing I'm thinking about after listening to that ad is all of us here are very aware of, you know, when we're exhausted and sleep deprived, that getting sleep sounds like the best thing in the world. Yes. But (laughs) this and some medication ads can also be scary with a long list of possible symptoms and complications and and confuse a lot of people when it's like set on a backdrop of a bird or people enjoying their lives. It's not really yet clear to me if our community will actually notice much of a change in the types of ads we see in here. The previous rule only required the companies to describe the most serious side effects, in quotes. And this new rule expands that to all of the major side effects. Again, that's sort of a little bit ambiguous, even though it added some clarification. Most companies already also describe the common side effects. So mainly, they would only be excluding the uncommon mild side effects from these ads. But most people, when they hear them, they they hear this long list of scary things, and it's already confusing. The rule does add some more clarity and strengthens the prevention of false or misleading statements or omitting key facts about the medication. But I think it's going to be a limited change that we'll notice. I'm always smiling because I always think of how uh, somehow they sneak in. I hear the word tuberculosis and I'm seeing happy people smiling in the side. I'm like, that doesn't seem to go together. Do you think, do these ads even work in your opinion? Well, the reality is they wouldn't spend their money if the companies didn't think the ads work. In fact, companies spend over $4 billion on this type of advertising. Wow. Some business studies have suggested that substantial effects of the advertising might impact actually when these, how much of these medicines are sold, estimated at around 10% an increase in advertising exposure, leading to about an increase of about 5% of prescriptions. It seems around 70% of this, according to these business studies, is an increase in new prescriptions, and about 30% of it is people staying on medications at higher rates than before the advertising. But, you know, the question is really, is should this health education and outreach to the community about these medicines come directly from companies or from other reliable public health resources without a profit incentive? Such a good point. And I guess that leads me to the next question. When someone is listening or watching one of these ads in whatever platform that they watch TV or uh, or do entertainment, how should the public or patients listen to these ads? Yeah, I mean, healthcare and medicine and these, this kind of decision making is not designed to be dependent on these ads. We are one of only two countries in the world that allow direct to public advertisements. And the American Medical Association and many other people have actually called for a ban on these, this type of advertising. So don't stop with listening to the ad. If it draws your attention to something that relates to you or your family or you have questions, then look for reliable sources of health information. This can include patient advocacy organizations for the medical condition you or your family member lives with or other professional organizations. Uh, Joe and I both work with the American Academy of Neurology and they have materials available to the community through the Brain and Life magazine and website. There's other really reliable professional organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics has a website called healthychildren.org and the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association really works regularly to address and have materials available to help people understand the importance of healthy heart living. The American Diabetes Association is another great resource. And 
Dr. Sverin, you also work with an organization that supports the public community living with epilepsy. So the Epilepsy Foundation or the MS Society or other examples of organizations that advocate for everyone understanding their medical condition and how to live better with it in a much in a much clearer, understandable way. And they often explain the details about the medicines available for those conditions. Let's go to yet another topic. Uh, Chad, I'm going to point this topic to you. Uh, and this has to do with sadly disappointing vaccine numbers. Uh, as of mid-November, nearly 15% of adults and more than 5% of children received an updated COVID-19 shot since they were authorized in mid-September, according to national survey data. The rates appear to be on track with the rollout of the previous updated COVID-19 shot, but fall significantly short of the flu vaccine coverage so far this season. Uh, Chad, is this as bad as it sounds? Well, I think it's complicated, and I'll explain a bit why. Sure. We typically look to the Southern Hemisphere winters, which occurs during our summers, to help predict what our respiratory viral season will look like each year. Uh, based on the Australian public health data, which is a very high quality, we have high confidence that actually influenza and RSV versus COVID-19 are going to be the standout viruses this winter here uh, in the U.S. and the rest of the nor northern hemisphere. Uh, and so far early in the respiratory viral season, that's exactly what we're seeing in the data. We have slowly increasing numbers of flu and RSC RSV and a, a smaller trickle of new COVID cases. So while we absolutely want everyone who's eligible to receive the newest COVID-19 vaccine, we aren't seeing those cases at the same clip or severity as we are the other infections. So we still have time for people to get those COVID-19 vaccines into their arms. Does this a low rate mean that something could happen or what may happen as a result of all of this? Well, there's certainly an out-of-sight, out-of-mind type phenomenon that occurs with COVID-19. I think people aren't hearing a lot about cases in the news, and many are fatigued regarding the vaccines, especially given the continued politicization and misinformation surrounding these vaccines in particular and the pandemic as a whole. Uh, but right now, the case numbers out there in the community are still low enough that we don't need to panic about the low uptake of vaccines right now uh, when it comes to COVID-19. But we have to continue uh, to encourage the patients and those in the community to get the vaccine. That way, in case we see any new variants or uh, any change in those numbers versus flu and RSV, the population will be protected. Got it. What is happening with COVID now? So cases and percent positivity of COVID are increasing in many regions across the U.S., particularly the Midwest and really any other cold weather state uh, that's seen some uh, change in the temperature and, and behaviors of the people. Uh, but these numbers are still less uh, than uh, what we're seeing with influenza A, influenza B, and RSV uh, around the United States. So there is a new variant of COVID. Uh, I think they're calling it, quote, the grandchild of Omicron. Uh, <laughs> oh, they're, they're starting to get a little bit hard to track because the virus continues to mutate. But the good news is, is that most of these new variants that are spinning off from the Omicron variant continue to be uh, not as severe, uh, although they are very transmissible. So uh, we're seeing a slow trickle of cases compared to everything else in a continual uh, viral mutation. And are people still getting super sick, like hospital sick with this? Uh, or not as much? So certainly not anywhere near the levels that we saw during, say, the Delta wave in 2021. Uh, severe cases of COVID-19 are rare for most parts of the U.S. and in most communities. Uh, there's a variety of reasons that might be the case. It could be due to lingering immunity in the population. So people are getting COVID-19, not realizing it, and and that uh, gives them some some level of immunity for a little while. It could be uh, lingering effects of old uh, COVID-19 vaccines that are protecting people, or it could be a less virulent strain, as I was speaking um, about the, the grandchild of Omicron variant. So I, I think it's probably some multifactorial uh, approach um, involving all of those things. But right now, uh, severe COVID cases are, are relatively rare at this time. 
Let me go to yet another topic. Dr. Milstein, there was a new women's health initiative. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Mazur, I think, a former professor in women's health research at the Yale School of Medicine, will lead a team made up of diverse federal agencies, such as the U.S. Departments of Health and Human Services, the Department of Defense and Veteran Affairs, to provide the Biden administration with recommendations on how to advance women's health research including how to address disparities across race, ethnicity, and disability status. We hear a lot of White House initiatives in health. Dr. Milstein, is this a big deal? Yes. For somebody who practices women's health, we are celebrating. As you know, women make up 50 to 51% of the population, but they have been excluded from scientific studies as a requirement until the 1990s. That's the 1990s. Women were excluded from the majority of healthcare studies. So really we're in our infancy when it comes to how we understand women's health and health impacts of women. In addition, Dr. Mazur is widely respected for her work in women's health and women's health research. We could not be more excited. One more question on this point. Uh, Do you think this will impact all diseases and diagnoses that impact women? You know, potentially. That's a huge question and has um, huge implications. But just a reminder that there are some conditions that only impact women. Think about menopause, for example, or PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. It should definitely impact that. You also have conditions that uh, affect women more than men, and hopefully it will shine a light on things like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And then you have very common conditions affecting both men and women, which are not well understood in women, like coronary artery disease. And I'm hoping this also shines light on that. It's a big job. I got it. Let me go to one last topic uh, that we have for the roundtable, and that has to do with suicide risk and concussion. Dr. Correa, you know, there's a year after suffering a concussion, teens, especially boys, are more likely than their peers to think about, plan, and even attempt suicide, new research shows. And with more concussion, the risk grows. The findings were published in mid-November in the Journal of Athletic Training, and researchers believe it's the first study to look at the relationship between concussion frequency and suicidal behaviors in a representative sample of U.S. high schoolers. Um, I guess to help out our listeners, remind everyone what a concussion is. Yes, of course. And, you know, I'm glad that this work and along with more work is now starting to actually include children and the study of concussion and traumatic brain injury. Like women, unfortunately, children have often been left out of much research. And so concussion is a general term referring to traumatic brain injury. It's most often used to refer to the mild traumatic brain injury and a TBI or or traumatic brain injury occurs when the brain is jostled in the head or the skull from a blow to the head or the body. This outside force could come from a fall on a hard surface, hitting another object or even a collision with another person that could occur with sports. The sudden movement and forceful movement of the brain could lead to damage and stretching of brain cells that can be associated with chemical changes and other changes in the brain that temporarily disrupt normal brain function. Commonly, this could include changes in memory, awareness, balance, and even pain issues such as headaches, neck pain, or light sensitivity. Is depression a common symptom of concussion? So that's an area where we're understanding more and more with time. Um, Initially, a lot of people would say it wasn't common, and I think that's largely going to be dependent on whether or not you're looking at people who just recently had a concussion or a mild traumatic brain injury and those first two weeks. Most people with symptoms, those symptoms will resolve or go away within one to two weeks, and we think in that group of people, depression is not common. We do think it is more common in people with symptoms that last longer. Uh, It can be one of the changes in mood experienced by someone after a traumatic brain injury and probably most frequently occurs in those with symptoms lasting longer than two weeks. In some cases, a mild TBI can be associated with a higher risk of depression. 
and there aren't many studies that limit to just mild TBI, but across the levels of severity in TBI, some studies range the rates of depression in after TBI in high school students being somewhere between 25 to 36%. So that's a higher number than we'd like to see. And in studies of adults, around 20% would meet criteria for a diagnosis called major depression or major depressive episodes within about six months of that traumatic brain injury. So that timing again shows you it's the people who have symptoms that are lasting longer. Gotcha. For all of our listeners out there, if anyone out there is thinking about contemplating or planning uh, suicide, please reach out to the 988 suicide hotline available on all phone systems. Lastly, uh, Dr. Correa, what advice do you have for parents and families where their child has a concussion or has had more than one concussion? Should they be worrying? Should What, they, what should they be doing? What's the best advice mm-hmm. for them? Yeah, I mean, I think here is where to really engage with your child or your doctor, if you're living with the concussion yourself, the, in, in high school students, the trainers and the coaching team, this, this team of people that are invested in your child's success, both academically and socially. Keep an open line of com- communication. Many schools, and it's important they do, have return to play protocols. And this is a process for evaluation of the symptoms and the side effects that can come after a concussion for returning to school and returning to play. Continuing light movement and activities with a focus on not just avoiding all the activities, but rather taking breaks and rest when symptoms occur and working through that. And that way they can get back to school and recover and um, their sports routines. And it's really important to focus on all the good rest and recovery routines. We've talked about with so many other things that affect the brain, the importance of sleep and with concussion and mild traumatic brain injury. This is one of the key areas. Uh, That is a great uh, last line for this segment. Up next, the amazing story of how teenage nursing students ran Bellevue Hospital, one of the largest hospitals in the United States. And we'll be right back. When I say that something, I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. I want to hold your hand. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and this is what's health got to do with it. You know, there are certain hospitals in the United States that are well known to everyone. One of those hospitals is Bellevue Hospital in New York City. It's a place described in superlatives. Oldest in the United States. Largest in the United States. The hospital contains a 25-story patient care facility and has an attending physician staff of 1,200 and an in-house staff of about 5,500. It's a behemoth. It's also a safety net hospital, providing health care for individuals regardless of their insurance status or ability to pay. It handles over half a million patients' visits each year. So our next guest tells an incredible story that's the subject of a forthcoming book. I want you to picture this. It's the early 60s. The war in Vietnam is raging. Political assassinations are commonplace. The first New York City blackout happened. A major transit strike crippled the city. And teenage nursing students ran Bellevue Hospital. Once screened by psychological tests, as our next guest tells us, they walked through the doors of 440 East 26th Street as teenagers and literally grew up. Joining us to tell us this story is Nurse Mary Marcus. We often don't do stories where the book has not yet been published, but the story was so captivating I wanted to share some of this with you all now. Mary joins us from her home in Middleburg, Florida, in Clay County. Mary, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Let's start. I want you, if you could, to set the stage for us 
with regards to your story as a nursing student? Well, 1964. My story starts then, about those times when we were scared and saved lives. Of course, why write a book about how it all began? But my worry is that we'll be forgotten, that nurses don't matter and had no names. I believe this because one year after graduating from nursing school, I moved to Boston and within a year at 21, started the ER nurse triage system at Mass General Hospital. At about that time, a medical student was rotating through and was writing one of his first books, Five Patients. Small physicians, administrators, patients, and families were recognized by name. Patty Clark and I were anonymous, the two nurses in OR1 in chapter one, page two. The chapter he wrote while observing us in the ER would go on to be adapted into a TV script and become one of the most popular TV series ever. The author of that book was Michael Crichton. So we're talking about uh, the Michael Crichton, uh, the creator of ER, of Jurassic Park, and countless other hit books and series and movies. Yep. That is incredible. And, and And you're the anonymous nurses within this. Yes, everyone was mentioned by name but us. I, I, there's a lot that I could go on from there, but let, let's get to but let's get to the, the the story. So, how does this kind of relate to your time at Bellevue? Well, I was prepared. I was one of the youngest nurses that was hired straight for the emergency room at Mass General. If I didn't do that, um, you usually had to spend time on the other units or the overnight ward. But because of my training at Bellevue. Um, sort of an urban boot camp in nursing. Um, there was no question that I went directly to the emergency room. And then within a short time, my skills were recognized uh, to triage patients. Uh, prior to that, the physicians were doing it, but because it was a rotation, it was very hard for the physicians to be able to get into the swing of triaging patients and getting them seen in a timely manner. So uh, they decided that regular staff, namely nurses, should be the ones triaging patients. Understood. So that's now, how I got it. So now I understand how Bellevue got you to where your, your role was at Mass General. How did you get to Bellevue? Tell us about that part of the story. Um, well, the process, I had a girlfriend in high school. I, I graduated with a class of 42 women and went from Chicopee, Massachusetts to New York City. Oh, wow. And um, my parents drove me in the fall when I was 16 to Bellevue for an interview, personal interview. At 16, you're interviewing for Bellevue, uh, for a yeah. program at Bellevue Nursing School? Yep. Oh, my goodness. Yep. I was in my senior year of high school. Yep. And how did you get selected? What was the, What were the criteria that they used for that? Um, they did personal interviews and psychometric testing. <laughs> now, psychometric testing is like a psychological testing. What What were they looking for? What qualities did you have to do well on in order to get the job? Well, basically, um, what was happening at the time was um, – Starting in the 50s, they weren't able to retain nursing students. And uh, in the United States, I think the recidivism rate was like 37%. So they decided um, through research that they needed to look for certain personality types who, and intellectual. You had to be capable of, of um, learning uh, the skills and also learning the theory. So they came up with this uh, psychometric testing which is still used as an assessment to measure an individual's cognitive ability, personality, and behaviors. And it's often used as a recruitment tool do you, to assess the potential of a candidate. Do you know and what, it's hard, what, it must have worked, because out of 200 students, only two dropped out. And I'm curious, and obviously it does seem to work, but what, what are those qualities that they're specifically looking for? Uh, amiability pleasantness, the ability to do tasks 
the ability to follow orders without question. Those were wow. basically. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yes, and you see why we have a problem today. <laughs> I, I'm smiling because I'm like, those are not the ones that we think of as, as we preach on this show, is to ask lots of questions and to question a lot of authority. How do you think all these experiences, the this here teenagers, as you put it, running wards, lot, huge patient lists, how, what did it do to the emotions and the psychology of of nursing students? Did 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 everyone burn out, or you just did your job and went on? <laughs> Here's the beauty: getting students so young. And myself, I went to Catholic school, and a lot of us were Catholic. We ex- were taught to accept things on faith. We were taught to believe. We were taught that you followed orders. So if something happened, it was part of the experience, part of the training. So um, you, you blocked it. But you can see from this lady here, she never forgot the experience. It still lives with her. As a matter of fact, I had just gotten this in an email from her last night. And I was upset for her. I ended up calling her because I I screened a little bit of what she sent me, but I had the feeling from the note that it was something that had upset her for a long time. And I wanted to call to make sure she was okay. And I think for a lot of us in our old age, we're starting to realize what we went through. I think the experience is hitting us now versus then. Mary, let me ask you that. Let me ask you this: As I listen to that, and the fact that here you are still talking to um, to to kind of classmates and other nurses, how do you view this experience in totality? Good, bad? Uh, like I can't believe I did this. Is it positive? Is it negative? How do you view it? Well, let me tell you, Joy Collins, who has helped me a lot with the with the um, pages we have, the Bellevue pages on on Facebook. Here's here's what she says, which really encapsulated. Bellevue is so special. I now have more respect for it now than I ever did. I think we were too young to fully understand the full impact of where we were at the time. Now, the more I learn about Bellevue and its historic significance, and the more I see how nursing is involving, I'm humbled that I was lucky and blessed enough to be able to study and work at such a wonderful place. You and I and all our fellow students experienced and saw things others only hear about. I still tell stories to my friends, and they are amazed at what we've proved to. She says, when she was uh, a student, she was assigned to an open heart case with Dr. Spencer, who was the leading open heart surgery surgeon at the time with NYU. And um, her patient was still in the OR and they told her to get her room ready, go to the ER, watch from the gallery for a while. So I'd know, so she'd know when to expect her patient. And when they brought him to the room, because it was a recovery room, we had no ICU. She said, I had so little training for what to do, but somehow I managed to keep him alive for the rest of my shift. He was surrounded by drips and machines, IVs, cardiac monitors, EKGs, catheters, you name it. And when I look back now, I cringe for my younger self. But I managed and my patient lived. Um, but that, Mary, I, I'm thinking this This is uh, a 16 or 17-year-old individual yep. Uh, running these things without training, I, I, I'm speechless. Um, I get that this is the way it was. How I, I get? Let me let me put the question in in a different way that that I have, which is how how should we look to these experiences in terms of how it shapes current nursing care? Well, first of all. We were on the cusp of technology. So the care was pretty straightforward. You lived, you died. 
I mean, I can't say that. Well, that's as <laughs> binary as it gets. The bird yeah. and the Bennett. The bird and the Bennett were were just invented when I after I graduated, and I graduated in '67. So we had oxygen tanks, we had nasal oxygen, and we had the iron lungs. Oh and we goodness. were rolling huge oxygen tanks to the side of the beds, putting dollies and strapping them to the bed. That's what. So you're getting the point. Yep. So it was pretty. It was almost like military field. I used to call it urban war nursing. It, it sounds it. So in that sense, it was simpler. The other piece of it was there was so much respect for nurses then because the patients could see <laughs> they could see what we were you know i covered two wards as a new graduate uh 24 patients on each and i would run up and down stairs and we had an aide on each floor we didn't know any different amazing we really didn't know any different just to give you an idea of what it was like carol barback says um one patient with liver disease just went off the rail started running around the ward barking. So they just assumed a student that his liver failure was worsening. So he tried to escape and use the exit. And it was just her and another nurse. So some other patients had to grab him, subdue him, and get him in bed. And what she said is amazing. This is what she said. Okay. That's when I realized that it wasn't just we students who ran Bellevue, but also the more rational and able-bodied patients. They were really our only backup that evening. They were our colleagues. It is incredible what you are describing. Let me let me kind of frame this. We may have nurses, we have uh, several nurses that listen to this show, and they may actually be in school now. I'm sure they're listening to your story and they're saying, oh my God, but what what advice would you give the current group of nursing trainees, nursing students uh, that are in the role now based on what you know and what you went through in your role? There is a nurse who runs a blog and has a Facebook page, Nurse Erica. And at times she blames our generation as nurses for the mess. <laughs> today the different you know the ratios yes, the, yeah, the, whatever the work but, but yeah. basically the core of what i see and the advice i would give is at time we we there was a creation of a attitude you heard you know that you were pleasant that you were accommodating that you didn't ask questions that you did the tasks and the people who were the best at following those parameters, became administrators, became in league with um, executives and non and, and people who are making profit of healthcare, and so it created a climate where it, it got worse and worse. When I first graduated, we had a break in the morning and the afternoon. We had a, a lengthy lunch. We um, really were able to think about what we were doing. And now we've got to claw that back. Now we've got to erase that we just smile and do whatever's done and question things and watch out for your license and um, and be safe in your practice. And if you feel uncomfortable, you have to speak up. And I love that beautiful tool. It's called an email. You write exactly what's going on and the problem you have with it, and you send it to the administration, and you create a paper trail of all the difficulties they're having. Because right now, we've become the people to blame when things go wrong. It broke my heart when that nurse in Tennessee was convicted of manslaughter That's over right. there. We did a whole show on that topic. Yes, Vanderbilt, it broke my heart because the surrounding conditions, yes, she did it. She admitted it right away. She wrote it in a report. But the surrounding conditions were so um, toxic and so unworkable that it was going to happen at some point. Uh, and the patient died, and it's a tragedy. And uh, with us, because we had a population, they wouldn't. 
who, I mean, not that we cared as nurses, but it was, you know, you lived, you died. I mean, we didn't have a lot of technological tools to be able to um, save people, sure. but we had a very hardy population that seemed to survive every physical assault on the body possible. So um, we, we did okay, but it really was urban warfare okay. nursing. That's what we had. And uh, today, there's so many levels that you couldn't possibly operate that way. So what I would say to nurses today is keep safe. Keep on top of things. Document everything. If you don't feel safe, let people know in writing, in writing, so that you've developed a paper trail that you're working under unsafe conditions. I feel so sorry. COVID just about made me sob. I had a good friend who was an executive at the American Hospital Association. I said, what the heck's going on that you're not giving them PPE? I will say we were given, as poor as our hospital was, we were given every tool available. Yeah. I just want to thank you so much uh, for sharing your story with us today. And, and again, thank you again for having me. It was a pleasure. You betcha. We've been talking to Mary Marcus. She's a nurse who is working on her story in a book regarding when teenage nursing students, you got that right, teenagers ran Bellevue Hospital, one of the largest hospitals in the United States, and just the stories of nursing care under that circumstance. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is our sleep show. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.